people use church for wrong reasons as well as right reasons. I like the sense of community. Yes. The problem with church... We live in social isolation a lot. Like, I never would be focused on that at all if it wasn't for my faith. Very, very welcoming to me. I feel a part of the community. The church is the hands and feet of Christ. Like, there's a reason why people do this. There is something to it, so... Connection and belief and faith. Loving everyone. Brian said he didn't want to steal my thunder. Makes me think like I need to bring some thunder. (laughs) Bring it, that's right, send it. In the early 20th century, these huge passenger ships, ships like the Normandy and the Queen Anne, they went across the North Atlantic, back and forth, back and forth. They had an incredibly unit, unit, that's not thunderous at all. They had an incredible utilitarian purpose. The reason they existed was to try to get passengers from point A to point B in the most efficient way. That's why they were called ocean liners. Let's just get them there in a straight line. But the efficiency of these ocean liners were challenged in the 1950s when jet liners came into being. They were, there was ways that they were so much faster, relatively low cost. The Boeing 707 made it so easy to get across the Atlantic. And they now started calling the Atlantic the pond. Easy to get across. What used to take six days in an ocean liner now took six hours. It looked like this was the death of ocean liners, these huge monstrosities, these floating palaces. But some resourceful, innovative ship owners got together and they started to think, would there be another way that we could generate revenue? And they came up with another idea, cruises. See, before the whole idea was just, how do we get people from one point to another? It was about transportation. But now the idea of a cruise is, We'll just start in one place, we'll take them in a circle, and we'll bring them back to the same place. But while they're on this ship, we're going to provide them with every possible entertainment option. Cruises, a new way to think about the shipping industry. What happened to them? The why changed. Why they existed changed. The old liners were about transportation. How do we get people from point A to point B? Now these new ships, these cruise ships, became the destination themselves. It was no longer about transportation. It was about consumption. How can we get people on our ship spending their money day in, day out to produce revenue for us? The why changed. Because of this, cruise ships then decided, we've got to figure out how to provide all the entertainment possible for people. And we ended up with ships that looked like this. Isn't that amazing, the size of those things? No one would have even imagined this in the days of the ocean liners. These things have water slides on them. Water slides, wave pools. Some of them have you know, roller coasters. 
There's like roller coasters and theme parks on these floating monstrosities. But they're asking the question, a different why. They're asking, what does the consumer want? And what can we do to meet all of their wants? Around about the same time, as there was challenges and changes around the shipping industry, there were some cultural shifts that were happening in the United States that created some change in the church. We see as the baby boomers started to grow up and got to the 60s and 70s, many of them were just saying, I'm really not as interested in the church as I used to be. So people within the church began asking a question. How do we get people back to church? How do we get them in the doors to participate in the things that we are doing? Friends, the why started to shift. Because originally, the church has always been intended to be a transportation for people. Transportation from people from point A to point B. What are those two points? Moving people to communion with God. Closeness to God. Communion to one another. And pulling people together to be a part of the mission of God in the world. How do we bring the greatest news ever announced to the world around us so that people's lives can be transformed by Christ? Point A to point B. But suddenly the church started to ask a different question. What do we need to do to get people here? We went from transportation to consumption. What can we do to try to meet all the needs of people as they come here? What is our role in that? Friends, the why shifted. The church began to focus not on being a vehicle, but on being a destination in and of itself and focused on consumption. Why is this so important that we talk about this? Because if the why shifts, if we have the wrong why, or even if our why gets just incrementally turned in the wrong direction over time, we're gonna find ourselves in a completely different place than God ever intended for his church to be. We've got to understand why. Because when we understand why, it taps into our passions, our heart. What is it that makes us want to get up in the morning and be a part of what God is doing in the world? Why church. That's why this series, friends, is so important. Why are we here? Why are we doing the things that we're doing? Our why at Journey Church, our mission statement, and if you've been around here, you've probably heard this, we lead people to radical love in action like Jesus. For me, I believe those last two words might be the most important words in our mission statement because those two words, like Jesus, Define what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone that says, I want to model my life after Jesus, his character and his competency and his ministry. I want to look at his life and I want to match my life to his. Someone that wants to be a disciple and make disciples, they're asking the question over and over, what would my life be like if Jesus was living my life? Would my life be any different if Jesus was living my life? There's a picture that we use to try to help people get our minds around this idea of discipling, discipleship, is learning to practice the ways of Jesus. 
And you look at that little you in the middle of that triangle. We want to grow our lives into the life of Jesus. We think about the up component of Jesus' life, how he modeled hearing and responding to the voice of God. If we're gonna be like Jesus, we've gotta learn to drown out all the other voices that are competing for our attention and just say, God, I want to hear your voice and your voice alone and whatever you say, I'm gonna respond in obedience. We move toward the up. In these last three weeks, we've been talking about the end. What does it mean for us to be the community of Jesus that he died for, this movement of people? And it's a movement because there's an out component. It's not just about us and what we do here. The purpose of the church is to take the message of Jesus to the world around us, up, in, and out. So we're gonna continually, friends, always ask the question, why? Is our why matching the why of Jesus? Are we like him? Are we like him? And if we're gonna understand the life of Jesus, we've got to look at pictures of the life of Jesus to help us understand what are the things that are on his heart and his mind. What does it look like for us to value spiritual family the same way that Jesus valued spiritual family? We're gonna look at a scene from the scriptures today that comes from John 13. Sometimes this picture is called the Last Supper. It's this picture of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. We get to see the why of Jesus. And here's how we're gonna unpack this text. Three times in this text, as John writes about the life of Jesus, three times he says, Jesus knew. There's something that Jesus knew. There was something that was on his mind, was on his heart, was around his life that mattered. And those things need to matter to us if we're gonna have the same why that Jesus had for the church. We're gonna read this whole story, 17 verses, buckle in, John 13. Before the Passover celebration, here's the first one. Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he showed them the full extent of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Here it is again, verse three. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. Someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well. Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for his feet to be entirely clean. 
And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And here it is again, verse 11. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing his feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I am doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that is what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. What does Jesus know? What is his why? The first thing that Jesus knew is he knew what he was facing. Let's go back to verse one. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus knew what he was facing. He was gonna leave this world and he was gonna go back to the Father. But there was something that was gonna happen right in the middle of that, wasn't there? The cross. Jesus in himself was gonna pay the penalty for the sin of the world. The wrath of God on him, not for anything that he had done, but he was gonna die the death that we all deserve to die. And if you look at the life of Jesus, you know that as he faced that, it created great anxiety in him. Imagine what that would have been like. Do you think if you were facing that, that you might have been just a little bit distracted in this moment around the table? When you've got something big that's gonna happen the next day, coming up, it tends to take your focus. Think about my own life. This happens to me just about every Saturday afternoon when I have to preach. My wife and I, we try to carve out time around Saturday afternoon. What we'd like to do is we like to just go for a walk, talk, catch up on life, start to talk about all the things, things that are happening in our heart, things that are happening in our world. It's an opportunity for us to connect. But here's what happens on Saturdays when I preach. Oftentimes as we're walking, I find myself starting to think about my sermon in the back of my head. Now she's still talking, maybe, but I am thinking. And she says I just kind of have this, this has got to be the stupidest look, but she said I just kind of get this far away look. And she knows that I'm not listening anymore. And she'll ask, are you working on your sermon? Like, dang, yes, I'm working on it. She's like, well, let's just talk about it then. When there's something that's coming up that is challenging, something that you've got to prepare for, it causes you to be distracted. It causes us to turn inward with our focus. There was never a time in the life of Jesus when he could have been, should have been more distracted than right here. But what was he thinking about? His life was turned outward. He was turned toward others. 
He was thinking about and serving other. He saw their needs ahead of his own. In light of what was coming in his life, when we think about this whole foot washing thing that was gonna happen, of all the people that were there, who deserved the spa day and the pedicure more than Jesus? Nobody. But who was the one that was actually thinking of other people? Jesus. This is the nature of radical love and action. It looks outward. Even, even in the midst of challenges and distraction. Now here's the deal. Every one of us in here has challenges. I mean, we could all come and march up on this stage and talk about all the things that could potentially challenge our life right now. Things that are distracting us in life. Things that would cause our life to look inward. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, we look outward. Even in the midst of great challenge in our life. It's not about consumerism. It's not that we are a cruise ship just looking to get our needs met. We're looking outward even in the midst of distraction. The second thing that Jesus knew is that he knew who he was. Without a doubt, Jesus knew his identity. Verses two and three It says, it was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Here it is. Jesus knew that the father had given him what? Given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and he would return to God. Jesus knew he was deity. He was God in the flesh the second member of the Trinity, the son of God that came to this earth, that entered into this world. Jesus knew that's who I am. He wasn't just a Jewish rabbi. This was the God of all creation in the flesh. So with that in our mind, Jesus understanding who he is, that all authority had been given to him. As we sit around this table at the Last Supper, People are thinking about whose job is it to wash the feet? Let me tell you, it was not the rabbi's job to wash the feet of the students or the disciples. And even to be more clear, it was not the job of the students to wash the feet of the rabbi either. This was a job, because of the nature of it, so disgusting, so gross, that it was a job only for the lowest of slaves. Many times, Jewish rabbis wouldn't even force Jewish slaves to do this. Only Gentile slaves could be the ones to wash feet. I mean, think about the culture. Open-toed shoes. Dirt. Humid. Think about the fact that as they walk down the trail, it's very different than Bozeman, Montana. As they walk down the trail with their camel, When the camel did their thing, they didn't have little plastic bags that they picked it up and carried it home like we do with our dogs. That was just all over the trail. Think about what that did to feet in open-toed shoes. It was gross. Nobody wanted to do it. And because nobody wanted to do it, the basin and the water and the towel, they just sat there. 
They just sat there in the corner of the room. Nobody looking at them. Nobody even wanted to make eye contact with them. John doesn't explain this, but Luke explains it in his account of the Last Supper. There's actually a dialogue that's happening between the disciples. Not only are they not thinking about who's gonna wash someone's feet, they're thinking about who's gonna be the greatest in this new kingdom that Jesus is gonna bring. They're just thinking everyone, they're gonna make him the king and we're gonna be his cabinet. Who's gonna be the top cabinet officer? I mean, we're gonna ride this Jesus train. We're gonna be famous. None of them even thought, maybe I should wash feet because they didn't even wanna tip their hand that maybe they saw themselves as lower than anybody else. It was all about who I could be. So the water, the basin, and the towel just sat in the corner. Everyone saying to themselves, not my job. I'm not doing it. It kind of reminds me of this picture that I saw. This caption should be, not my job. I'm not moving no armadillo. Just going to paint right over it. Not my job. So you have a whole group of folks around the table thinking about this foot washing thing and everyone's doing this. Not it. Not it. Not it. Not it. Pretty soon everyone around the table has their finger on their nose except for Jesus. Jesus doesn't say not it. Jesus actually drops a bomb into the room. When he walks over to the corner of the room, kneels down, grabs the water, pours it into the basin, and says, takes that towel, wraps it around him, and one by one began to wash the feet of the disciples. We read earlier, just freaks Peter out. No way. You can't do this. We need to do this. Jesus is showing us, what does it look like to live as a spiritual family? It says that the greatest is the one who's willing to stoop. Friends, we've got to have this picture in our mind that this is the God of the universe. Jesus, the one who spoke and created everything that we see. He is sustaining the life of all of these folks around the table. The only reason that they get to take another breath is because he allows it. God became man, but not just man, man that became a servant, that took the lowest place. This is God. Our God that is willing to kneel, that is willing to stoop, that is willing to become a servant, the creator that was willing to become a servant. And when we see that and we start to internalize it, there's just something about that that is so attractive. When greatness is willing to be humble, there's something that draws us to that. Sir Edmund Hillary, some of you might recognize that name, back in 1953, he and his Sherpa buddy Tenzing, they were the first to conquer Everest. 1953, when you think about the equipment that they had or didn't have, the lack of technology, it is a physical feat that is just absolutely amazing. 
breathtaking that they were actually able to do that. As a result of that, Hillary was just honored immensely. They knighted him. That's why he's called Sir Edmund Hillary. He was given incredible rewards, incredible financial rewards. But here is what is true of Sir Edmund Hillary. He never used that platform to make himself great. Instead, he took that platform and used it to build things for the Nepalese people. That was his heart, to help the people that had been so helpful to him, raising lots and lots of money to build schools and hospitals and airports to help others. It was never about him. It was always using those things to help others. Greatness, willing to be humble. There's a story that's told about Sir Edmund Hillary, just kind of lives on in the hearts and minds of people. There was a time he would often go back to the Himalayas on different kinds of expeditions. While he was on one of these expeditions, there was a group of climbers that recognized him and they wanted a picture with him. So he obliged, absolutely. So they all get together for the picture. They hand him an ice ax and he's standing there holding the ax ready for the picture. There's this other group of people that start walking by and one of the guys out of that group walks over to Sir Edmund Hillary, doesn't recognize who it is and he says, excuse me, sir, you don't know how to hold an ice axe. Let me show you how to do it. All the people in this picture are just thinking, what in the world are you doing? Do you know who this is? I mean, this would have been a great time for Sir Edmund Hillary to just lay this guy low, cut him off at the knees. Do you know who I am? You know what Sir Edmund Hillary said? Thank you. Thank you for your help. And took the picture. When we hear those stories about greatness, that are willing to be humble, there's something in us that's moved. There's a rightness about that. Friends, it's because I believe that it is a reflection of God's kingdom. It's what we long for. It's what it means for us to be that kind of a spiritual family, that we would lay aside ourselves for the sake of others. Greatness that is willing to stoop. Greatness that is willing to kneel before others. That's the radical love that we see of Jesus. A God that is willing to stoop a God who is willing to kneel, a God who is willing to wash feet, willing to wash feet. Lastly, the third thing that Jesus knew, Jesus knew his audience. He knew everyone around that table. Verse 10, Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. Verse 11, for Jesus knew. Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Just think about this. God, in that moment, Jesus wrapping the towel around himself and he begins to wash the feet of these disciples. Peter, James, John, 
Andrew, Matthew, Bartholomew, and the rest of the guys, I never remember their name. (laughs) But there is another name that we remember, isn't there? Judas. Here's Judas. I just wanna know what was going on in his heart as Jesus got to him. Judas knows what he's gonna do. Jesus knows what Judas is gonna do. And Judas knows that Jesus knows what Judas is gonna do. (laughs) This is awkward to say the least. I just wonder, was his heart pounding? What is Jesus gonna do? Is he gonna call me out? Is he gonna shame me in front of everyone? Is that what he's gonna do? What did Jesus do? He knelt down in front of his betrayer and with the same love, the same kindness, the same compassion in his eyes as he, as he had done for everybody else. He got down and he washed his feet. Jesus was willing to move toward the messy. That was a messy, awkward situation. And Jesus moved toward it. Here's what's interesting to me. Nobody knew that that was true of of Judas except for Jesus and Judas. There was a time when Jesus said, one of you is gonna betray me. In other gospel accounts, the disciples aren't going like, man, it's totally Judas. I know that it's Judas. It's gotta be him. Been watching him. Nobody knew that it was him. In fact, the other disciples are like, is it me? Could it be me? Could I be the one that would betray No, it was Judas. Nobody knew. He looked just like everybody else. And then Jesus loved him just like everyone else. He moved into the messy with Judas. Did Judas deserve to have his feet washed? No, not even close. But you know what? Neither did anybody else around that table They didn't deserve for God to kneel and wash their feet. And you know what? I don't deserve it either. And I'll be honest with you, neither do any of you. But that's the kind of God that we serve. That's what his kingdom looks like. A God that is willing to move toward the messy. And if we're gonna be the kind of church that God wants us to be, it's gonna be messy. I mean, just think about this situation for just a second, would you? Judas, He had the best pastor ever. He had the best Bible teacher ever. I mean, think about his small group. This was like an all-star list. Think about his ministry experience, how he saw the power of God and what he got to see and experience. He had everything. And it got messy. The wheels came off. But Jesus moved toward the messy. And if we're gonna be the kind of spiritual family that Jesus wants us to be, friends, we are gonna have to learn to move toward the messy. And friends, there's a lot of it out there. There's just a lot of it out there. A lot of it in here and a lot of it in here. Over this last few weeks, um, kind of one of my practices in terms of even how I do my job I don't spend a ton of time in my office. I like to do as much of my work as I can in coffee shops because I just wanna engage with people. 
I wanna see you out there in town. I wanna talk to you. I wanna hear what's going on in your life. I wanna be able to pray for you. So many times when I'm at those places, people will kind of sneak over and like, I'm really sorry to bother you. Can I just say right now, it's not a bother. If I didn't wanna talk to you, I wouldn't go there. Please come talk to me. That's my little commercial for the day. But I've had some interesting conversations that people have come up and talked with me about. People not even around our church. One gal came up to me and she just said, I'm thinking about coming to your church. I wanted to talk to you about that. As we started the talk, pretty soon there were just like tears in her eyes. She said, I didn't see that coming, but I've been pretty beat up by the church. And I just thought, ah, messy. Another gal that I kind of know a little bit from around town and places that we frequent, she came up and she just said, "Uh, this might just be the caffeine talking, but I want to say something to you. I'm a Christian, and I don't like Christians. She said she'd been wounded, wounded by the church. It's hard to even come to a church. Messy. Had another conversation with a gal. She just said, I want to share with you some things that are happening in my life, but I'm so afraid that you're going to yell at me. That's what happened the last time I talked to a pastor. I just said, I'm so sorry. I promise. I will not yell at you. Wounds, messy. Friends, if we're gonna be the church that Jesus wants us to be, we've got to learn to do messy. If we're gonna live out the why that Jesus has for his church, we've got to figure out how to do messy together. We've gotta learn how to love one another. And Jesus later in this chapter, chapter 13, He just lays it out on the table. There's a lot at stake in terms of us being able to learn to love each other in the middle of the mess. This is what Jesus said, John 13, 34 and 35. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, a new commandment. Think about just this one commandment. Can you do this? He says, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How are people gonna know that Jesus is who he claimed to be? It's our love. Our love for one another, our willingness to move toward the messy, engage in the messy, take time for the messy, not think that our lives are above the messy, but that we're moving toward one another. We need to move to the messy. But Jesus, he never leaves these pictures without throwing a challenge down. For those that were sitting around the table and friends for us as well. He's asking us the question, this is what is true of my family. This is what is true of the kingdom. What are you gonna do about it? What are you going to do? Here's his challenge, verse 15. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is a messenger more important than the one who sends the message. He just lays it out there. Now that you know these things, now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. What's Jesus saying? God's gonna be with you. As you turn your life outward, 
as even if you are great, as your greatness stoops, as you enter into the messy, God says, I am gonna be with you and I'm going to bless you. God wants to do something in us as we learn to serve each other in a spiritual family. I have a friend of mine, he says it this way about this blessing. He says, serving other people without any desire for recognition, without anybody knowing what you're doing, is like peeing in a wetsuit. Nobody knows what you're doing, but it makes you feel warm all over. (laughs) Try to get that image out of your head for the rest of the day. Sorry about that, not really. Jesus took on the posture of a servant. And he asks us, will you take on the posture of a servant? Not asking yourself, how do I get my needs met? But asking yourself over and over, how do I meet the needs of others? How do I serve around my journey family? And can I say this, this isn't just about service here at Journey Church on Sundays. This isn't just about asking you to do church chores. That's not even what I'm talking about here. That might be a piece of it. But are we gonna take a posture of a servant so that in all the places where we live, places where we live and work, where we go to school, in the neighborhoods where we reside, are we gonna be a servant? Are we gonna be the kind of people that are looking at the needs of others Seeing a need and meeting a need. See a need, meet a need. It's the heart of the kingdom. It's the heart of the king. I wanna ask you to put your things aside. I just want you to go to prayer and would you ask the Holy Spirit of God right now, would he speak to your heart? Would he give you a tangible step that maybe you would take to serve others? Jesus, thank you for this picture that you've given us of what it looks like to be a family. Holy Spirit, would you take that picture and drive it into the deep places of our heart, into the deep places of our longings, that this is who we would want to be as a family. Regardless of what's happening in our life, looking to the needs of others, regardless of how important we might think that we are, we're willing to kneel for the sake of others. God, would you give us a hunger and a desire to move into the mess with one another? God, we need you to help us do that. We know, left to our own devices, God, we're self-centered. We turn inward. Help turn our eyes outward. Please, Jesus. Help us to become more like you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net. Thanks.